Hello, I'm Scott Lincecum, Vice President of General Economics and Trade here at the Cato Institute. And I want to welcome you watching online to another installment of Cato's Defending Globalization Speaker Series with former U.S. Treasury, Treasury Secretary and current Harvard professor and President Emeritus, Dr. Lawrence H. Summers. For those viewers unfamiliar with the Defending Globalization Project, we launched it last year in response to increasingly vocal criticisms of the relatively free movement of things, people, capital, and ideas across national borders, or what's commonly called globalization. You'll now find on the project's main webpage dozens of essays, videos, and other materials, both correcting the record on globalization, what it is, what it's produced, what its alternatives are, and what people think about it, and offering a strong and proactive case for more global integration in the years ahead. We hope that defending globalization will serve as a one-stop shop for everything policymakers and laypeople need on these issues. And similarly hope that you, your friends, and your colleagues will find it to be a much-needed resource, especially in light of the anti-globalization narratives that are today so trendy in Washington and elsewhere. Among the content you'll find on our, at our project's website are video conversations with some of the world's foremost experts on international economics, law, and policy. And my guest today undoubtedly fits that description. Lawrence H. Summers is the Charles W. Elliott University Professor and President Emeritus of Harvard University and the Wild Director of the Masavar Romani Center for Business and Gover Government at Harvard's Kennedy School. During the past three decades, he has served in a series of senior policy positions in Washington, D.C., including most notably the 71st Secretary of the Treasury under President Clinton, Director of the National Economic Council for President Obama, and Vice President of Development Economics and Chief Economist of the World Bank. Given this background and his recent policy work, of which I assume most viewers today are well aware, we at Cato can think of few people on the planet who are better suited to talk about globalization than Mr. Summers. Indeed, I learned in the run-up to this discussion that he even teaches a class on globalization at Harvard, so it's a pretty perfect match. Now, with these formalities out of the way, please allow me to extend a warm virtual Cato Institute welcome to Secretary Lawrence H. Summers. Larry, thanks so much for being here today. Glad to be with you, Scott. So just to give viewers an idea of our run of show today, I'll be posing several questions to Larry, and then we'll have a bit of an open discussion, and then we'll wrap it all up. So uh, with that out of the way, let's, let's go ahead and, and get started. Um, Larry, I've said a few times during the course of our Defending Globalization project that if you'd asked me a decade ago whether something like this project was necessary, after all the data and history and experience on globalization, incomes, development, poverty, and so on, I'd have said you were crazy. Um, yet, of course, here we are. So I ask, so ask you, you know, someone who literally teaches a class on globalization at Harvard, are you surprised that we're here having to sit here in 2023, and especially in the United States, and defend open trade and globalization? Um, or did you perhaps see skepticism growing in the classroom and elsewhere? Uh, I have to say I'm not hugely surprised. Uh, during the late 1990s, you had major disruptions take place of the WTO meeting in Seattle. It was necessary for me to ride in a extra protected uh, vehicle that had a 
precautionary gas mask within it um, because of the possibility of protests during the IMF uh, World Bank meetings. During my time as Secretary of the Treasury, I warned that allegiance for U.S. leadership on global issues was very difficult when one of our great political parties couldn't muster a majority within itself to support any trade agreement. That at that time was the Democrats. And the other major political party couldn't muster support for U.S. financial contributions to any international institution, that being the Republicans. I think the principal thing that has changed since that time is that Republicans have become even less enthusiastic about trade than Democrats were at that time. So I think the protectionist impulse has always been uh, strong. And so I have to say, I'm not hugely surprised that globalization is under attack uh, from many quarters, both political and intellectual. And I might say that this is not a purely American uh, phenomenon. Resistance uh, to globalization, uh, enthusiasm for economic nationalism is one of the things that has gone global in recent years. Yeah, it really is um, striking the change in rhetoric, like you, you mentioned in the Republican Party in particular, but uh, not just in the United States. Um, this kind of global push um, that uh, despite the data and stuff, I, I agree with you, seems quite politically attractive and, and of course, has, has been around for, for a long, long time. Now, you know, we at Cato have uh, principled and libertarian reasons to support the free movement of things and people and idea and capital across political borders. Um, but, you know, some of the most potent and persuasive reasons for supporting globalization, in my view, are pragmatic. You know, my background, I came as being a trade lawyer, so I got to experience kind of the nuts and bolts of daily protectionism uh, and some of the political cronyism as well. Um, again, you know, almost on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, among the most, I think, most persuasive reasons are the well-documented harms and inefficacy and, again, political dysfunction that protectionism and nativism have long produced, especially here in the United States. Uh, but in your, in your view, um, you know, what do you see as kind of the poster child for this pragmatic case? The, uh, and why is it the Jones Act? No, I'm kidding. No, more seriously, uh, what do you think really is the kind of poster child for protectionist failure uh, in, in either the United States or elsewhere? Um, and relatedly, do you think um, what, why do you think these failures um, have ceased to persuade much of, of Washington? Look, there are certain ideas that appeal naturally to the human intuition. If you ask someone untrained in physics, what will happen if you drop a heavy ball and a light ball? They predict that the heavy ball will fall faster than the light ball, almost invariably. That was what Aristotle believed. And then 
we had the scientific method, the method of experiment, and now we know different. In the same way, protectionism has a profound intuitive uh, appeal. It's better if we purchase things from people who are on our team than if we purchase things from people who are on the other team. And so it's probably not surprising that there's a very strong human attachment to the idea of protectionism. And we have, over time, there have been a variety of political strategies to overcome that kind of ignorant intuition and also to overcome the fact that the beneficiaries of protection are organized, concentrated, and know who they are. And the losers from protection are not organized and are much less likely to see their losses. And so, for example, steel protection in the United States is protecting only 1% as many jobs as it's threatening in the industries that face higher priced inputs because of uh, steel protection. But the steel industry is able to concentrate and organize, and steel users have many priorities, don't concentrate, don't organize, and often don't even recognize the extent to which protectionist measures are part of their problem. My reading of the evidence supported by Peterson Institute work is that the most important interests in free trade are consumer interests and that lower prices that come because of more open trade add somewhere in the trillions of dollars, low trillions of dollars to household uh, income. Well, it's just as valuable to me to cut the prices of everything I buy by 10% as it is to raise my wage by uh, 10%. But those consumer interests tend to be obscured in trade debates. And that's, of course, a particularly important concern at a moment like the present when inflation is a continuing, albeit diminished issue. Yeah, yeah the, it seems that in recent years, um, steel has an added benefit these days of being located in these really politically important states, um, you know, not just in uh, the, the industrial Midwest, but also in the Carolinas as well now. Um, and that, that seems to even make it the political dynamic even more difficult than it already was with, you know, motivating consumers to care about, uh, you know, a little more expensive appliances or, or other things or, um, you know, that, that diffuse uh, cost of, of all that protectionism. Um, I would, I would say, uh, you know, uh, Jones Act jokes aside, probably, I think steel is probably the poster child for, for that, for those failures, of course, you know, um, we've subsidized and protected the industry so much. And yet, you know, here we are dealing with, um, an industry that's demanding even more protectionism today. Um, 
U.S. Steel getting acquired now potentially by Nippon Steel in Japan. Um, none of that stuff really seems to have worked, although they still seem to have a stranglehold um, on our political process. Um, anyway, um, let's let's go on to I think what really is a challenge. You know, the, it seems the case for free trade and against protectionism is pretty solid. Uh, uh, quite solid, as you note. Um, but inarguably, there is a real and big challenge for globalization advocates and free traders today, and that's, that's of course, China, um, which raises real economic and security concerns for the United States. But uh, as all sorts of evidence and analysis has shown, also generates significant economic benefits for Americans on net. Um, in, in your view, however, um, how much of the China worries that have really overtaken Washington and overtaken the entire debate about trade and globalization today, um, how much are those China worries justified in your view? And Or is how much of this is just American protectionists finding yet another justification for long-held beliefs or selfish financial gain? Um, and then finally, um, how do you think about decoupling of the two economies, um, which is again a very popular concept in DC these days, um, but both you know, decoupling's effects and quite frankly, whether decoupling is even possible? Some of both, Scott. I do not doubt that China poses a grave threat to the kind of global order that has kept peace without major war between major powers for more than 75 years now, something that's close to unprecedented in human history. If I think about what the threat to that is, a vexed relationship between the United States and China is probably the most serious uh, threat. And I think one can't look at the growth of Chinese spending on military defense, the extent and nature of Chinese attempts to involve itself around the world, important rhetoric that comes from Chinese leadership without a variety of Chinese business practices without seeing a real and fundamental threat to, to use the cliche phrase, the American uh, way of life. And I think that's uh, something that has to be a primary responsibility and focus for any responsible policymaker. And so I am sympathetic to policies that seek to protect American intellectual property in national security sensitive uh, sectors. I am sympathetic to a desire to avoid excessive dependence for key inputs on potentially politically controlled Chinese uh, 
enterprises. I am sensitive to a focus on the challenge China poses as motivating of all of us to grow our economy as strong as possible and ensure American technological uh, leadership. Where I worry is when the theory is that China is subsidizing the production of some good, therefore we need to not buy it from them, or therefore we need to put a tariff on them, or therefore we need to subsidize American producers. Somebody wants to subsidize me by putting things on sale at the store, I think that's good. And I think if China wants to subsidize American consumers or wants to subsidize American producers with low cost inputs, I think that's good as well. Of course, there's a concern that um, it will be done temporarily, competition will be removed, and prices will then be jacked up. But the record in all of economic history of that kind of successful predatory pricing being carried out successfully is really pretty dismal and pretty low. And so I have to say I am not nearly as worried as conventional policy wisdom about that problem of uh, predatory uh, pricing. And so I would want to be quite active at, uh, in regards uh, to China, but focusing on the kind of national security concerns that I touched on, rather than China becoming an excuse to produce, to protect particular producer interests at the benefit, at the detriment of consumers. And and on the decoupling issue, do you do you do you think uh, that's even? I mean, it seems impractical to me, uh, given the size of the economies, given how intertwined they are. Um, but do, how what do, how do you see it? I thought Janet Yellen had the right phrase when she said de decoupling no, de-risking yes, and then we should have a debate about what constitutes the boundaries. My guess is that some of what the Biden administration thinks is de-risking, I might not completely agree, but I think the frame de-risking, not decoupling is the right frame. So moving on, uh, you know, for all the talk of uh, anti-globalization and de-globalization and all the shocks we've endured in recent years, even right now, um, one of, I think the, one of the remarkable things about uh, the global economy is that trade and value chains have actually proven remarkably resilient, um, performing in many ways during the pandemic um, better than more localized production. Um, but in your view, is there a point where the political rhetoric and the marginal policy changes that we certainly have been seeing um, have a more significant impact on the trade reality? So instead of a few areas of 
of there being a more economic nationalism and less uh, trade integration, really that expanding beyond. And if so, if you see that as a real risk, um, what do you see, I think, are the major causes, uh, and, or excuse me, costs, the major costs arising from that broader shift in localization in the United States and, and elsewhere? Um, look, I think we have some very powerful trends around information technology broadly, around the fact that people can have Zooms, around the fact that communications are much easier, around the idea that one can learn from Harvard's faculty while being thousands of miles away uh, from Harvard, around the fact that one can do much more um, augmented by artificial intelligence without physical proximity than's ever been true before. And all of that is operating to promote more globalization. How that balances against certain political factors that may be operating in the direction of restriction is what's going to shape the future history of uh, globalization. I think the idea that this has to keep moving forward or it will move backward, the so-called bicycle theory, is a bit overdone in many people's minds because I think it fails to recognize that um, technology is a kind of ongoing positive tailwind for, uh, global, for globalization. But look, uh, the experience of the world after 1914 has to be profoundly sobering. And with sufficient political conflict, with sufficiently strong nationalist forces, huge damage can be done. And the damage is felt in a way that accumulates over time. I always like to tell the story of an essay that Paul Samuelson wrote after the Second World War about four countries that he grouped in the same category. New Zealand, Canada, Australia, and Argentina. All were countries with substantially educated European descended populations all were possessed of attractive natural resource um, endowments. And yet you would put three of them in the same group today and one would stand out. The one that would stand out is obviously Argentina for its negative experience. And that has to have a great deal to do with the pursuit of hyper-nationalist economic policies for populist uh, reasons. And that's just um, not something that mattered over a year or two, but cumulatively was catastrophic in its consequences. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And now we're seeing in Argentina, uh, you know, efforts to try to roll back some of those populist policies are really difficult, even with a guy like Javier Malay. Uh, you know, it's, it's trying to remove, once those things are put in place, those policies, it's, you know, it's very difficult to, to undo them, regardless of the motivation of, you know, uh, the, a president or a few political actors. Um, Gordon Tullock, the uh, public choice economist, had a very powerful idea, the transitional gains trap. And his point was that if you engage in protection and people make investments in reliance on that investment, in that protection, they do not earn supernormal returns or profits. They keep investing to the point where capital earns a very normal return. And then if you remove the protection and it's a surprise, you have, in a sense, delivered them a negative windfall. You've done something that's unfair. You've pulled the rug out from under something that they relied on. And so it's not that they have no fairness argument against what you have done. The point is that it's much easier to not impose protection than it is to remove it once you've imposed it that right now with steel tariffs and a few other things that are in place regardless of the evidence it's very very difficult to remove them um well and i think you know that's a great segue to our next question it's about industrial policy um you know as you know industrial policies today all the rage in capitals around the world especially in washington where there's been you know, trillions of dollars in new subsidies and localization mandates and then those tariffs as well um but after a couple of years of theory and a lot of optimism, it seems that even advocates of industrial policy are realizing some of the problems that it's long faced in the real world. Um, among those are the policies often contradictory goals. Uh, you create local jobs versus proliferating essential technologies and like in renewable energy. And also these policies running headfirst into pre-existing US policies like the National Environmental Policy Act or that Jones Act that can delay critical projects or you know, in the case of offshore wind, for example, scuttle those projects altogether. So do you think the bloom is off the industrial policy rose here or um, is there perhaps a role for so-called modern industrial policy today? I think it's a mistake uh, to generalize about industrial policy. I think that it is much easier to see market failures than to see the various problems that will come when people try to correct them through uh, public sector uh, action. I believe that it is absolutely necessary to have a military, that on occasion, it is absolutely necessary to fight wars. But I believe the generals who are best are the generals who are most skeptical of military action, most aware of the costs uh, and tragedies of war, 
and most reluctant to fight wars. And in the same way that I believe that civilian control of the military and a military led by people who abhor war rather than celebrate the glory of conflict are best. I believe that industrial policies are best pursued by those most skeptical of public action rather than those most enthusiastic about uh, public action. I do think as one thinks about challenges like the renewal of our energy system to be more renewable, the integration of the um, uh, uh, the integration uh, of artificial intelligence into the overall functioning of the economy. I believe all of this, um, the challenges like the development of vaccines quickly when we need COVID require coordination, direction, even planning of a kind that the market will not naturally provide. And so any doctrine that says the government should not be involved in anything or anything to do with the economy seems to me to be very misplaced. If the interstate highway system was industrial policy, I'm for it. If the uh, transcontinental railway was in industrial policy, I'm glad Abraham Lincoln did it. If the land grant colleges were industrial policy, I am glad that uh, they happened. If somebody is thinking about the ways in which semiconductors are the new oil, and we need to avoid the kind of dangerous dependence that the United States had for a significant interval on oil in the best possible way, I am for it. But when I hear about industrial policies and then I hear them justified by somebody talking about all the jobs that were created, then I reach uh, for my wallet. When I hear people being enthusiastic about industrial policy as an abstraction, rather than being enthusiastic about a carefully crafted minimalist government program to respond to a specific concern, that's when I get very nervous. Yeah, it's it seems that uh, when you he listen to some advocates of industrial policy, at least everything and anything is industrial policy, and it it's bound to always always work. Uh, and regardless of the actual structure, right, there can be a minimalist approach, as you said, something like an operation warp speed, for example. Uh, but then when uh, push comes to shove, there the policies that are often implemented are are so much broader and uh, have so many different objectives, including you know creating jobs and the rest. Um, Moving to our next question, I, you know, I, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe take a victory lap. Uh, you know, a common criticism 
of so-called neoliberal economics and trade policy is that the this Washington consensus, open trade and investment, fiscal moderation, and relatively free domestic markets, that the Washington consensus has, has failed in the developing world. Yet several recent analyses, including uh, an essay as part of our project on the so-called race to the bottom, have, have shown that actually the Washington consensus performed pretty well in the 1990s and the two, and 2000s, um, helping to lift hundreds of millions of people around the world out of, out of poverty. But of course, here we are now a decade or so into our post-neoliberal experiment, um, and we're seeing actually poorer countries falling further behind after decades of convergence. We're seeing the repeated inability of governments, including the Biden administration, to forge a new post-neoliberal model for U.S. trade agreements. Uh, and uh, we have some of those warnings I mentioned regarding certain industrial policy initiatives. Um, so my question is to you, uh, do you think the Washington consensus is poised for a comeback? Um, does it, and does it deserve one? Um, or are we going to continue down this post-neoliberal path, whatever that actually is, for, for a while longer? I think historians will, when they look back at uh, the last 35 years, see the fall of the Berlin Wall as a story. I think they will see the complicated tensions between the Islamic world and the West as a story. But I think when they take the long view, they will see the convergence of the developing world and particularly the Asian part of the developing world with the traditionally Western rich part of the world as being the most important thing that happened to humanity during this period. And it happened because of the spread of market forces, and it happened because of the spread of integration. And that in many ways is the best thing that ever happened to humanity. On average, on one calculation that I saw over the last 35 years, more than 100,000 people have been lifted from extreme poverty every single day. That is a staggering achievement. And you cannot escape the conclusion that it is centrally related, not to the provision of transfers, not in all honesty, due to the proliferation of non-governmental organizations, but to market forces operating to drive people to have better opportunities and stronger incentives to provide to shape their dreams. Can all of that happen in ways that are faster, in ways that are fairer, in ways that do better to protect the long run future, it surely can. And how best to promote uh, development, how best to keep the world at peace. Those are 
very profound issues and they need to stay with us. But gosh, I think the idea that somehow this has all been a failure for the developing world, that is, it seems to me, virtually impossible to read out of the historical record. And I certainly hope that the inferences that will be drawn will be different than that. So one last question before we uh, go to the rapid fire portion of our discussion. Um, our, our Defending Globalization Project naturally emphasizes the many economic and cultural successes of open trade and migration, uh, including the billion people raised out of extreme poverty that you just mentioned. Um, and we also emphasize the many failures of economic nationalism and industrial policy, steel tariffs, the Jones Act, and other things we've already discussed. Um, but in your view, what do you think the globalization critics get right? Um, where have we globalization fans gone wrong? Um, and do you personally have any regrets from your time in government or as a public intellectual along these same lines? I think that um, the fact that the constituency for economic nationalism is so strong in so many countries reflects the fact that in our enthusiasm for global integration, we gave too little weight to the risks of local disintegration. And if I look at what's happened to life expectancy statistics in the United States, if I look at the of mature men, men between the ages of 25 and 54, who have checked out of uh, even seeking employment, there's a great social undertow that has been happening while globalization and technological progress have been happening. I don't think that seeking to slow them down is a strategy that is either feasible or desirable, but I think we have been insufficiently attentive to making everyone partners uh, in the project. And I think too often we have allowed this to appear in part because it's been the reality that it is a project that is more about Davos and the people who go there than it is about Detroit or Dusseldorf or Dahomey. And that, I think, has probably been something that could have been managed better. Yeah. You know, one of the things we talk about outside of the Globalization Project, and I, I write on a good bit, is um, helping those displaced by, whether it's globalization or technology, um, adjust. And that we have so many policies in place that have nothing to do with trade or globalization, You know, whether it's on housing or occupational licensing or criminal justice, that really make it harder for those that truly are disrupted by these big forces, um, make it harder for them to, to move on. Um, seems we could do much better there as well. Um, so we 
just have a few minutes left, and I, I thought we'd close with having some fun on some rapid-fire questions, asking you um, whether you are going long or going short on various ideas. So we'll, I'll go through these quickly, long or short, uh, and then we'll, we'll close it all up. Um, so long or short on uh, the Russell 2000 small cap index. Long without great conviction. Trends are good, events are bad. Markets over time go up. <laughs> good. Uh, artificial intelligence. Long. This is very fundamental as a technology. And at one level, it may be the most important change in the way human beings know things than the, since the invention of the scientific method. Okay. Uh, U.S. home prices and housing supply. Housing supply uh, has got to go up from here, given all the things that have held it down. Who knows about home prices? Uh, coastal megacities, New York, San Francisco, and the rest. I think, it's, I think given the ability to have more connection at a distance and more effective uh, connection, um, I suspect I would not be highly bullish on that. Okay, so China. I, I think China's got very difficult period ahead. Um, and that there's a real chance that we will look back at the way we saw China in 2020 and put it in a category with the way we saw Japan in 1990 and Russia in 1960. Okay. India. India's got vast potential, a low base, and if they can keep the politics together and avoid um, mismanagement of ethnic conflict and avoid um, excessive crony capitalism, I think that India can be this global economic story of the next quarter century. Okay. The industrial Midwest in the United States are the, also called the Rust Belt. I'm hopeful that more places over the next two decades will have a story like the one Pittsburgh has had over the last several of decline followed by renewal with more emphasis on technology. Uh, electric vehicles. I don't have, I mean, High expectations, substantial spread, how the two will compare, I can't judge. Weight loss drugs like Ozempic. I, I think that they're going to continue to uh, improve and we're going to see substantial progress on of a kind that would have looked quite unlikely a few years ago around issues of obesity. And finally, uh, bubble tea. No opinion at all. 
My daughter loves it. I don't understand it. Um, great. Well, look, uh, Larry, this was great. Uh, this concludes today's Defending Globalization conversation. Um, and I want to thank Larry Summers for taking the time to join us in what was a really fantastic discussion. Larry, thank you so much. Um, and for those interested in learning more about globalization and our project, you can find it all at cato.org backslash defending hyphen globalization. Um, thank you for watching and stay tuned for more of our work in the months ahead.